Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. On this week's agenda, we're talking about books. I talked to Kia Brown about her book, The Pretty One, and Gina has an interview with Amina May Safi about her novel, Tell Me How You Really Feel. Hey, hey, so you may have already heard or seen, but we are going on tour this fall, heading to a handful of cities where we've never done a live show before, and we are so excited to see all of you IRL. It's our Stay Hydrated Tour 2019. You can find us in late September and early October in Toronto, Detroit, Denver, Austin, and Houston. Get your tickets and get the full tour schedule at callyourgirlfriend.com slash tour. And if you are not in one of these cities, we're sad to miss you, but please give your local besties the heads up that they should come hang out with us. We always have a great time and we can't wait to meet them too. Callyourgirlfriend.com slash tour. One more quick announcement before we start the show. We're getting ready to do an episode all about money, finances, your worries about money, your questions about money. What do you wish that you'd learned about how to manage money earlier in your life? What are things that you're trying to figure out now? How is money affecting your relationships? Are you dealing with debt? Do you have extra money you're looking to invest? Let us know what you want to know. Leave us a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can also record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at callyrgf at gmail.com. Please let us know in your voicemail or email whether it's okay to use your name on the show. Thanks. It's summer books time, y'all. Wait, reading them? Writing them? <laughs> um, I have never written anything in my life, so I don't know what you're talking about. But we are definitely reading summer books. What are What are you reading this summer? What is on your like bedside stack slash in your beach bag? This summer, I am reading some plays. Ooh. And uh, also trying to get into some science fiction. Getting weird over here. Oh, my God. I am also, um, I'm having an Octavia Butler summer. Did we do this unintentionally? Like We I am- did do it unintentionally. My God, the friendship. It is sustained by these moments. I love it. Ugh. Well, I am dystopia deep in Parable of the Sower right now. So <laughs> I will report back. The best. My name is Kia Brown. I'm a journalist and writer, and the name of my book is The Pretty One. On life, pop culture, disability, and other reasons to fall in love with me. Kia, I'm so excited that you're on Call Your Girlfriend. This is really fun for me. I'm so excited to be on Call Your Girlfriend. I am such a fan, as you know, because I'm always tweeting you like, hey, girl. (laughs) Well, listen, we are fans, too. I have been following you for so long. I love that this essay collection is out because your full personality gets to shine. I will be really honest. I do not have anybody until recently, like didn't have anybody very close to me who had a disability that they were that they were very vocal about. It was really mm-hmm. interesting that my entry and a lot of like my consciousness in starting to think about these issues was through social media. 
and through talking to people who have now become friends. And so I think that, you know, like thinking of your book as a resource for for people, you know, for people like me and for mm-hmm. people who generally do not have a consciousness around disability is something that, you know, like it makes me really excited because I'm like, wow, we're such idiots and we need it. But, at the, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but at the same time, like really realizing that, um, you know, my experience is not the experience that should be centered in talking about a book like this. Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people um, who will come across my book, hopefully, I'll maybe be the first person that they're, you know, reading about who is both physically and invisibly disabled. And so I don't mind being that starting point for someone else. I even say in the book, like, I may be the first black disabled woman whose book you're reading, but I won't be the last. Because I know that there are so many people, you know, behind me who are ready to tell their own stories. And so I think if I'm the entry point, that's fantastic. And, you know, I have so many stories to tell. And I think that people will hopefully, you know, see that and understand that they need to change their cultural ideas of what it means to be disabled and what kind of lives we can lead as human beings first and open them up to this better world where we see more representation for all of us, not just for those of us who are able-bodied all the time without chronic illness. Yeah, you know, and I think that that's what actually was so striking to me about reading your work is that while you talk about your your disability, it's it's the lens through which you see the world, but it's also not the totality of who you are. And you when you took on this writing project, you had the idea of making a book. Like, how was that something that you negotiated for yourself? Well, I mean, I've always as a writer, like I've always wanted to write books. That's kind of been the dream. You know, I've been writing since I was like a young girl. First, there was bad poems and then bad songs (laughs) that I just that seemed brilliant at the time. I was just like, oh, these are fantastic. Like, you know, I'm just going to go to Nashville and somebody's just going to be like, I want her to be a songwriter because Lord knows I can't sing. But I mean, I've always been a writer who has wanted to write a book. And initially, I was desperate to, like, write fiction first because fiction is kind of my first love. But I think as I sat down and talked with my um, agent, Alex Slater of Trident Media Group, shout out to him, I was like, I think I want to do an essay collection first because I feel like it'll be a good introduction into who I am and kind of expand people's minds. But I think writing a book is a really isolating process. And so you're kind of writing it very much by yourself, with your thoughts, having to contend with who you were and your past self. And so when you're doing that, you have to like open up old wounds. And I can't, I think just getting through that process, how I did it was just being like, okay, this could help one person, even if it helps one person or, you know, teaches someone something, then it's worth it. I love that. The Pretty One is a collection of essays that really explores your relationship with your twin sister. I'm always obsessed with like sister narratives, but then twin sisters, I'm like, I, I can't even, like, I cannot even handle that. <laughs> you know, I was like, wow, like, can you, can you get, like, you are that close. But, you know, yeah. I really, I really love that you talk really candidly about your relationship with her and, mm-hmm. you know, and your, rela- and your relationship to her and the relationship that the world has around the two of you. Yeah, I think it was imperative for me. I think that one was the one that I, the essay that I was scaredest to write because I was like, I need to be honest. And so I don't want people to think that this is like a, 
you know, me versus her thing. I wanted people to understand that, like, I put Leah through so much. <laughs> and I think it was just because I was uncomfortable with myself. And so when people usually see twin narratives, it's like twins finishing each other's sentences, looking just alike and, mm-hmm. you know, doing all these things. And it's like, because we never... I don't look just like her. And I think I was jealous of the twin narratives that I so desperately wanted and also thought were the only things that made twins twins. So I talk about in the book, you know, Mary-Kate and Ashley and Tia and Tamara Mori, and I'm like, I want that. But I knew at a very young age we wouldn't have that because we don't look exactly alike. And even now, you know, even though I've been working and we've been working on a relationship, I think that's still a point of, like, sadness for me, that I don't look more like her, so I get very insecure about that. But I think for me to tell my full story, I had to be honest about our particular relationship. You know, Kia, the overwhelming feeling that I I had when um, I, like, I was done, like, while I was reading your book and then while I put it down was just this, like, an overwhelming reminder of all of the places, that I, the areas in my life where I lack self-love and and really mm-hmm. thinking about how you have written like in an inspirational like rallying cry to doing that and so i'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you are feeling about the ways that other people are receiving your work i think self love is an everyday process and so even now for me with the book done and written and you know out there in the world I think I have to work so hard at loving myself and I don't want people to ever feel the way I once did. I want people to understand that there's a other side to it. You just have to work to get there and and then keep working once you're there. It's like a job. You get the brand <laughs> you get the brand new cushy job and you're like I I have to do work now, you know, to stay here. So I think for me, I wanted people to feel like it was possible for them too by the time they finished the book. I wanted people to feel like, you know, if she can do it and she can get to the other side of her own, you know, her own beating herself up and being mean to herself and, you know, hurting herself and hurting others in the process, then maybe I can too. Um, and so I think, yeah, that was very important for me to show people that, like, they could love themselves and that they should just the way they are and not make it so that they have to change who they are to receive love. Right, like just this idea that you are worthy of being loved right now. Like it's not a, you know, there are not improvements that you need to make. I right. Just, it's, it sounds so simple, but for me, I was like, oh, like, this is, <laughs> you know, like, I, like, I'm not saying that I'm an emotionally sophisticated thinker because far from it. In fact, like I am <laughs> the, the dumbest emotional thinker, but just like seeing it outspelled out, there was something so powerful about that for me. Yeah, me too. I think even in writing it, I was just like, you know, epiphany after epiphany, like, oh, okay. You know, I have to like practice what I preach. You know, I can't in one breath be like, oh my God, to my friends, like you're perfect. Who wouldn't love you? And then turn that around to be like, oh, this isn't the same thing for me. Like I have to give myself or at least try to give myself the love I give to others. And it seems right. It seems so simple, but some days it's hard. I mean most days it's hard I would say I would say most days it's very (laughs) it's very 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 hard but you know but at the same time it's just that thing that it just it just also you're so right like it makes you realize how much you can become like a vessel for pouring into other people and I think that 
for me like a lot of that is tied into like my blackness also like i will say that yes. like, being, a bla- being a black woman like i just i find myself like being this like vessel for other people in a way that i have a real inability to do for myself and yep, same and just you know in like really interrogating that and sitting with that and and realizing that a lot you know like the root cause of a lot of that is pain and it's a kind of pain that we don't talk about a lot Right. It's not. And I think, too, for me, a lot of it is like sometimes I feel like I give so much of myself to other people in that way because I don't want to give people a reason to leave. And I feel like that's something that I'm trying to, um, you know, investigate and figure out myself. It's just like at the core of it, it's like I do it because I love people, but also because I don't want to be abandoned by them. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> Man, I mean, investigating your own feelings. Is there anything Oof. more dangerous? <laughs> it is literally <laughs> it is literally the worst, but people have to do it. Well, you know, I like the tagline of your book, which I love is on on life, pop culture, disability and other reasons to fall in love with her. I love that that is just like it's the most charming like invitation into just being like okay this girl is cute she is cool like we are falling in love with her and I just wonder if you can talk more about about the process of just like saying that like very boldly and openly oh girl I'm trying to get I'm trying to be booed up so I was like listen (laughs) (laughs) I was like listen if this tagline can help me get a date like, I am all for it. Because I think my editor was like, you know, it should be funny, but not too try hard. Like, it should grab people's attention. And I was like, oh, don't worry. I got it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he was like, he was like, oh, no, we love this. Like, this is perfect. Rakesh Tatiao at Atria Books. He was amazing. And he was like, oh, no, this is great. And I was like, I'm really just trying to be out here, you know, to get a date. Right. So you're like, you're like, this book is my resume. It's my emotional <laughs> right. resume and it's my professional resume. So I need everybody right. everything to, is, to read every part of it. Exactly. I was like, everything is here. You know, you get a taste of what I love in pop culture. Like if you're down to watch TV with me, like we're per- it would be perfect. I gave everybody, you know, like the, the rundown so that they would know if they wanted me to go, if they wanted to go on a date, they had everything they needed to know <laughs> to impress me. <laughs> Oh man, and you look so beautiful on the cover. Like that sweater is Thank so, you so bomb. Much. Now that I know that it's like a it's a dating photo profile, <laughs> it's your billboard for that. I was like, this is this is genius. You always look cute. Um, Thank you. True girl. to the hashtag that you started, also right about this. Yes, yes, disabled and cute. I started it in 2017 as well, and essentially it was kind of a very you know, me-centric thing where I was like, I want to celebrate finally feeling good in my body. And then, you know, other people joined in and it went viral and then we went global. And it was just this really cool place for disabled people to like feel good about themselves and kind of give themselves permission to love who they are and who they can be and who they will be. Um, So yeah, I think for me, it's always been about like trying to find other ways to make people feel as good as I do now and so hopefully the hashtag and the book is an extension of that yeah you've also been doing um some profiles lately some celebrity profiles I have to say you know slight work (laughs) Uh, slight work um 
you're getting like a diversity of assignments. You are like your work has a larger audience. And at the same time, like you put all of this blood, sweat and tears into the book. Yeah. And so I'm really wondering, you know, from like a writing mogul standpoint, since that's where you seem to be headed. <laughs> um, I'll take how- it. You know, like how you are really thinking about, you know, about the things that you want to write and the kind of the niche that you want to carve for yourself. Um, well, for me, it's like I don't want to be pigeonholed. I think we, we talked about it earlier, but for me, I wanted to talk about in the book specifically that, you know, I am disabled and it's worthy of talking about, but that's not all that I am. And as a pop culture lover and a person who used to write exclusively for a magazine called Cliche Magazine, where I talked to, you know, celebrities about TV shows and movies, I wanted people to realize that, like, I can do that too. Not everything I have to write should be through the lens of disability. So the profile that I did on Brie Larson um, for Captain Marvel and the March cover of Marie Claire UK, when she reached out for me to do the cover, I was like ecstatic because I think people don't often give, you know, marginalized writers a chance to write outside of their beat. And for me, that was really important because I think a lot of times people only think that I can write about, you know, the trauma of disability or the trauma of being a black woman. And Brie Larson was like, no, girl, I got you. Like, <laughs> like I, wanted, I want my press days to be more diverse and inclusive. And she kind of gave me the opportunity of a lifetime in that I was able to do this profile of one of the biggest movies of the year. And so she gave me the opportunity to kind of you know, show what I can do and and spread my wings even further. And that has led to like other big opportunities. So I'm very grateful to her and her team for doing that. And writing the book was a really big and welcome exploration into other things that I love, like pop culture and music and love and all these things that I've never really had the chance to write about in full before. I was like, well, this is my book. So I'm going to write what I want, and hopefully people will gravitate toward that and give me other opportunities in the future to do something outside of just talking about, you know, identity, even though that work is also very important to me. I really love that she, uh, that Brie Larson and her team reached out to you because it's such an example of how, you know, like powerful people can leverage their power to get what they want and to do something better in the world. So that makes me really happy. Um, Might actually watch Captain Marvel now. Um, (laughs) So good. Okay. If you, (laughs) if you say so, it's been on my like to watch list, but writing this book is, it has not been conducive to watching movies. So. Right. Oh no. It's so time consuming. Oh, I wish you guys so much luck. Oh my goodness. It's so time consuming. We'll take it. We'll take, we'll take the luck. Um, is there and now that like a lot of people are reading it and reviewing it, is there an essay that is resonating the most with people? A lot of people like the ponytail essay. Without too many spoilers, explain to the listeners the ponytail essay. Okay, so the ponytail essay is called Freedom of a Ponytail, and it's essentially <laughs> <laughs> and it's essentially about me being twenty four and learning to put my hair up in a ponytail by myself for the first time, which sounds like a very simple thing, but when you grow up in a disabled body, I just never knew how to do it, and so it took a lot of weeks of like practice of like putting my own hair in my hands and like tying around. So people really love 
like tying it around my um, hair and then making a ponytail. So people really love that one. They like the chairs essay, which is essentially me just talking about how much I love chairs and kind of giving them personality traits and names and and treating them like they're my you know romantic relationships because I spend so many so much time with chairs so people love those two the most I think I love that those are two of my favorites too good Um, I like those ones too I'm biased I like them all but I really like those (laughs) right it's like somebody's like can you tell us who your favorite child in your essay collection is please right like we would never do that Kia where can our listeners find your work you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kia, K-E-A-H underscore Maria, M-A-R-I-A. I'm also on Facebook at the Kia Brown. So you can find me there. It's like I post a bunch of my work, but also I don't take myself too seriously. So there's other stuff about cheesecake and attractive people and good books and TV shows that make me both happy and super angry. So you'll get the gamut (laughs) of me. (laughs) You'll get everything all at once in those places. Oh, man. Kia, like you, you are the best. I just, I'm really glad that you have, you know, that you have a book out there that is going to make people like fall in love with you and also hopefully fall back Fingers a little crossed. bit fall back a little bit in love with ourselves thank you you too thank you so much this conversation was amazing I'm Amina May Safi, and my book that's out now is Tell Me How You Really Feel. Thanks for being on Call Your Girlfriend, Amina. Thank you so much, Gina, for Thanks for me. being another iconic Amina to oh, join the show. You know, I have a lot to live up to. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, we all have a lot to live up to in this novel. Um, we're going to talk about some of the wonderful literary qualities in your book. Oh, but um, first, you dedicate it to the creator of Gilmore Girls. I did. Amy yeah. Sherman Palladino. Yeah. What do Rory and Paris have to do with these decidedly not white, not Connecticut protagonists? (laughs) Tell me how you really feel. Um, So I feel like the Rory Paris ship is super iconic. And when you say ship. Basically the non-canonical relationship that they have a romantic future together. How Um, fans would read the show. How fans would read the show. I think that their chemistry is really great on the show. In fact, um, Lisa Weil, is that how you say her name, who plays Paris, um, was actually only scripted to be on three episodes and her chemistry with Rory was so good they just kept bringing Paris back, mm-hmm. um, which I think is just super fun. So it's just honoring that like two ambitious girls who actually are the 
best and most compatible like relationship in the show you have Rory has all of these kind of terrible boyfriends throughout all of Gilmore Girls it's like they seem like they could be okay and then they get in the relationship and they're actually awful to her it's like pretty much and it's TV right like TV does that where it's like trying to make it interesting well so what made you want to kind of take that dynamic and blow it up into a novel I love their dynamic because they are well, they're in the show, they're enemies to friends, but I always think of it as enemies to lovers. And I love enemies to lovers because it's two people that have to kind of fight and find their way through understanding one another. They come from different perspectives. They come from different ways of understanding each other. And I think that I've seen a lot of that just in my life. Um, my parents are really different. My grandparents were both, like both of them were really different, um, both sets of them. So I think I just had a lot of that modeled on top of the fact that it's just like a very fun trope that I love to play with and I love to play around with. I just love the idea of getting to have two young, ambitious women of color who have two really different ambitions. Um, Rachel wants to be a filmmaker. Sana wants to be a surgeon. Like I wanted them to have both a creative ambition and like a more like technical STEM ambition and like watch sparks fly. I think it's really fun. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about Sana and Rachel. Like you were saying, you know, they're both young women of color. They go to the same school. You dig so deeply into the particularity of each of their identities and their different personalities, even their different L.A. neighborhoods. Yeah. How did you go about figuring out who each of them was? I love character. I think I always write in a place of character. But I start with archetypes, actually. Like I wanted the idea of like, enemies to lovers um and i loved paris and rory because they they're both so ambitious and they just really push each other and i love that and then i wanted it to be a jock and a nerd but the nerd is a film buff and the jock is a cheerleader um and that's the fun part about getting to write two young women falling in love is like you just get to play with gender on a level that you don't in a straight romance um and you get to dive into the performance of gender and the ways in which it's actually just super wacky and doesn't make sense. And you get to not just flip it on its head, but just like use it as its own vehicle for that character. It's also the whole story is a love letter to LA. So it was fun to dig into like, well, where does, where does Sana live? Like, where does Rachel live? Like, how does that shape who they are? How does that shape? Because neighborhoods shape who you are in the city in a way that I feel like maybe New Yorkers kind of understand, but it's like you, you have this like kind of locus point of where you're from in Los Angeles and then you radiate out from there and it feels like a piece of you. Yeah, there are um, not so many stories that in LA that feel like the place where I grew up and have spent most of my life and your book really did. Oh, thanks. Um, what made you want to write specifically about the often unseen or unsexy jobs in the film industry? I think those are my favorite jobs. Like I, And I think I've known a lot of people who worked as editors or like you know who work who've worked editing like commercial business films or people who were on crews and you know held the lights or plugged in the electricity like there's so many people in the city that have those jobs I wanted Sana's mom to have like Farah to have that kind of job because it felt like a a viable blue collar job that she could have had and worked her way up the the rungs if she had worked hard and gotten lucky. And it felt like a fun way to honor the film industry 
on one end where you have a girl who wants to be a director and on the other you have a girl whose mom like really worked up like the very masculine blue collar rungs of the film industry which is not easy and it was a fun thing to give her mom and and to kind of dig into what that means because I think with film we always think about the glitz and the glamour and the Hollywood and the parties and all of those visible parts of the film industry and I think people don't understand how many invisible jobs there are like all the people that just do craft catering for films like that's a whole segment of jobs that people have that people don't think about but they're essential to getting a film going because you have to feed your crew and you have to feed your cast and like you can't do 12-hour days without food on the table and it's just this wild thing that I don't think people think about what it takes to like you're basically running a mini army essentially to like get a movie made and which is you, fun and you exploit that in the story too as rachel is trying to figure out what it means to become a director yeah and like what it means to share that vision when we talk about women running a set we often want to describe this like nurturing female only space and i think that that works for some women and i didn't think that that would work for rachel and i wanted her to find this space that was her own of finding leadership that was neither coded feminine nor coded masculine and neither trying to aggressively control people nor just only nurturing them into behaving, but instead finding this way of like sharing her vision and getting people to see what she's going for in a film and help her make that. And I feel like that was also part of her struggle as a character is to like let people into what the way she sees the world. She kind of lets everything out and lashes, but she doesn't let people in and like let them see the world from the her perspective, essentially. Totally. We've talked about how um, Sana and Rachel go from enemies to lovers. So mm-hmm. people already know that and they would know that just from picking up the cover of your book. Yeah, the cover is a big spoiler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did find myself extremely pissed off about how much pain they caused each other early on. So good job. You wrote that very well. Thank you so much. Um, Are you someone who's fueled by competition? Yeah, I am. I think, and especially as a teenager, it was very much, if you told me I couldn't do something, I had to go immediately do the thing. Like if it's, and just still, but like, especially as a kid, it was very like, oh, girls can't do that. I was like, I'm going to go do it right now. Right. Like it was, I have two cats, but it is, it's that cat thing where you're like, you can't do that. And then they just like knock the thing over. That's definitely, that definitely <laughs> comes from me. When do, you th- <laughs> when do you think that competitive energy, like in the Rory Paris dynamic, when does it energize relationships between women versus this idea that like we're needlessly tearing each other down? Like you think that there's a hard finding that in between space that isn't like, oh my God, we should all be nice to each other. Yeah. I think that, okay, I so I love old 80s rom-coms, and I actually, I'm actually going to reference one right now. In Say Anything, you know the part where Diane Court goes to the party with Lloyd Dobler? This is Ioni Skye's character is, with John Cusack. Yes, John Cusack. Yeah. So she goes to a party with him, and she runs into her, like, salutatorian nemesis, and that girl is just like, thank you so much for being so good, because without you, I wouldn't have pushed myself. And I love when women push each other in that way, when they're like, they want to model the women that they see succeeding. Um, I think it does tap into um, what Anna and Amiatu talk about with like shine theory, but I think it's also just healthy competition. I don't think we get to see healthy competition between women a lot, especially young women where it's like, it's okay to compete with another woman, just don't 
tear her down. It's okay to see her and be like, I want to do as well or better than her or her doing well doesn't mean that I can't do well. It's just, it's when you use that as a way to tear down or when you use that a way to say like, there's only one seat at the table and it's going to be me. Your competitor is someone you respect. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't always have to be someone you like, but they can drive you to be better. But that's also why I love enemies to lovers, because I love two people that push each other to be the best versions of themselves. Like, that's my favorite part about love is this idea that, like, someone can challenge you and make you grow as a person um, rather than only making you feel like it's a balance of feeling safe and comfortable with that person, but also having them push you beyond yourself to become the best version of yourself. And I was going to say like the rivalry in the first part of your book between Sun and Rachel is so much more complicated because this isn't just a friendship ultimately. They, yeah. And they, it's not a secret. They know they're both attracted to other girls and yeah. they both know they're attracted to each other. Yes. But they both want to pretend like they're not, which is, <laughs> I don't like her. She just is really interesting and she's really smart and she has the prettiest face I've ever seen, but I hate her. And it's her like, hair smells like pineapples. And her hair smells like pineapples. And she also smells like Jasmine. And I just, I might go out and buy some pineapple shampoo later. It's not a big deal. <laughs> but I think that that's like being a teenager, right? Like you don't want to, I think especially as a young woman, you don't want to admit that you could have these really intense feelings that could take over and maybe derail this like plan you have for your life especially when you're young you're like I'm I don't have time to fall in love like I want to make movies or I want to be a surgeon or I want to go on this internship in India like I don't have time for love right and both characters as you've said are so driven and so on the path like these are not the teens who are sort of like lost and stoned and like unsure no but then having that clarity and that drive causes other problems like um i love how sana's big secret is not that she's gay no um but it's still very tricky business for her to like be out and to be and particularly to be femme yeah i want to ask you to read from a section that's told from rachel's point of view you're right in the third person but we are kind of inside the mind of each character in alternating chapters. So this is a section that's from Rachel's point of view. Okay, and the highlighted part. Uh-huh. Sana Khan moved to this world trying to tell everyone in tiny, everyday ways that she was attracted to girls and nobody registered any of them. Flirt, touch, wink, bat her eyelashes, kiss girls, hold hands, brush her insane body up against Rachel's, be obvious in the way that everyone could see but that nobody seemed to care about, not if you looked like Sana. Sana wasn't trapped in a closet. Other people just kept building one around her. And as she kept walking out of them, they kept building new ones around her. What interested you about sort of like portraying this side of Sana of like being queer and being clear about that and yet no one gets it or no one wants to see that? I think it's, it was... It plays into a bigger story. I think it plays, it plays into a bigger story with her character about examining what beauty means especially as a young woman um and especially as a young woman who doesn't necessarily trade on that in that she benefits from beauty privileges but she's also not straight and she's also like wants to be a surgeon and so like she's not necessarily like going to profit off of her looks in in a traditional manner but I think it was also just we conflate gender performance and sexuality a lot. 
And we often assume sexuality based on what someone looks like, whether or not that's fair or true. And then there's also a sense that like, if you see someone, you just assume they're straight. And I wanted to play with that idea with her where like people just assume she's a popular straight girl, teenager, and she's like constantly brushing up against that because this isn't a coming out story. But I think it's true that if you are queer, you are constantly coming out to people. Do you think that's harder for teens of color in the kind of environment like Rachel and Sun are in this like prep school, rarefied environment? Yeah. And and I think that's what makes Rachel so angry. Um, like she's she's got a class differential because she's on scholarship. She's Mexican-American. She's Jewish. Um, and then Sana on the other side is, is part Persian and part South Asian. I wanted to be honest about the fact that like that can inform who you are and how you see the world and how you've been treated while also suspending their space and providing them kind of like a fairy tale L.A. magic romance. So I wanted it to not be about the struggle and I wanted to give them space to be carefree, not because there aren't struggles and those struggles do inform the way they see the world, but because I wanted the focus of the story to be about them falling in love the way any rom-com works. Um, yeah, totally. So it was like trying to balance like being honest while also like giving us, giving this like safe space for, for carefree young girls of color and carefree queer, queer young girls of color. Um, I think both are important because fiction is both a space of play and a space of learning. And you need stories that remind people that those struggles are still real. And you need stories that also normalize and allow people to have everyday lives and everyday love stories just like anyone else. Totally. No, I think you did that so beautifully. It's one of the great pleasures of reading the book is like finding their deeply rooted cultural specificity it's just beautifully interwoven, right? Of like, which neighborhoods, like when Sana goes to visit her grandparents in Orange County, like the immigrant experience and being each successive generation is like, so, you know, they're all- The struggles of the third generation are different than the struggles of the second generation or the first generation. And that that was fun to play with. But it was also fun to realize that like, so Rory Gilmore and Gilmore Girls has these like, Friday night dinners that like mm-hmm. with her grandparents that are kind of these imposed dinners and they're these like very uptight waspish spaces and it was fun to find the places where there is an intersection between like um, uptight east coast waspish old money and immigrant culture in Orange County with South Asian and Persian influences right like the idea that like your whole family would come together once a week like I'm Muslim and part Arab and like we did that too or we did that even with like people who weren't family but they were aunties or uncle like they were like family so it was just like finding those finding those commonalities was really funny and really fun because it was kind of unexpected to think Mm. of like when you realize like there are similarities and the ways in which people become clannish are similar is kind of fun to explore yeah it, it it was sort of like the second that I read you writing it it made perfect sense Thanks. right of like of course there are differences among generations there are these different cultural norms and informed by different experience of class and where you grew up and all well, that. and of course like Farah is Sana's mom so she's more likely to like rebel against her parents and then Sana rebelling again would be much more of a conformist than her mom, Mm -hmm. which was really fun because it's like, how are you, my child? Like, everyone's going, how are you, my child? You're not behaving the way I would (laughs) behave, (laughs) which is like, I feel like always the the real struggle. And I love exploring the ways in which, like, 
you have this legacy from like the matrilineal line, right? Like who your mother was and who you are and like getting to do that from grandmother to daughter to granddaughter was, was super fun. And it was super fun to explore the ways in which they have loved and helped and harmed one another in the way that only I think mothers and daughters can. Yeah. And it was interesting because by contrast, you know, Rachel's family is so small. Yeah. Yeah. It's just her and her dad and her mom's around, but gone. But gone. Yeah. She's left them. And so that's left this kind of like hole and kind of phantom ghost like limb in her life um, that she never wants to deal with, but it's always popping up into her thoughts and popping up into the way that she interacts with people around her. Um, But she still has community and she still has, like, even though she feels so isolated and alone, I think that like she still had people to reach out to. She just didn't always want to and understandably so. So it's like learning to, to reach out and let people in is I think a big, a big part of how she grows. You belong to a boxing gym. I do. How does getting in, like, I'm just curious about because you write this tension between these characters so well. And there is um, some accidental physical altercations that happen between them. Sonic is kind of (laughs) fucked up in the story. Um, I kept trying to break her. So the where I started too was I was rewatching the Gilmore Girls revival and the thing I noticed about Rory Gilmore is if you watch Gilmore Girls, you'll realize it's actually mostly from Lorelai's perspective. Like the mm. the POV, if you really think about it, the point of view is Rory's mom, Lorelai. And so you don't realize how angry she is. Like it pops in and out, but you don't see it because she kind of keeps the lid on it and her mom doesn't really notice it. And so it goes, it kind of explodes out spectacularly end of season five, season six. And, and I wanted how to, angry Rory how is. angry Rory is. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to kind of save her from that. But I realized the only person that can save Rory Gilmore is Rory Gilmore. So the only gift I could give her was cracking her open earlier. So she had a like safe space to be angry and to let it out. So I kept trying to crack Sana. And she is so good at performing this like perfect sort of the placid ponytail the perfect ponytail she's just like got it down she's been doing it for so long that like cracking her is next to impossible so it was like i'm gonna bang up your wrist or and then i'm gonna bring up your foot like i just kept trying i'm gonna bring in your dad that you're mad at like i'm just gonna keep doing things to you and you are just gonna keep sailing through them and it just took a lot to crack her so that's part of how that is that is that how it feels to you as a writer like there are these kind of they become even though as you're setting the world in motion you're just like what's up with this character i can't get to her Yeah, she was really difficult to get at because if if rachel doesn't let anyone in then sana doesn't let anything out right like she's so good at at everything is going to be okay like everything is fine if i can perform like what normal looks like if I can perform this ideal femme good girl, then like life will be smooth. You know, everything's going to be okay with my mom. They'll be nicer to my mom. They'll like, people won't come at us. Like she's just like Mm -hmm. learned to, that is her coping mechanism for dealing with the world and cracking that open when someone's been doing that since childhood is, I mean, since early childhood is, is wildly difficult and, and letting her be vulnerable in the way that she would be angry and letting her let out that anger, even in ways that we consider unacceptable, is the, the gift that I wanted to give her and giving her space to do that. 
And it's wild how much it still upsets people. They're like, I can't believe she did X when she was mad. I'm like, she was really angry and she's been holding on to like 17 years of rage. <laughs> like she's been keeping it inside. She has to let it out. And it's not always going to come out in this ideal, perfect, healthy way the first time. It's going to mm-hmm. snap open. Right. Right. Because she hasn't built any pathways for no, resolving conflict. No, she's just like buried down all... deep and never mm-hmm. speaking of it again. <laughs> like a good immigrant child. <laughs> Also very waspish again, like these weird, <laughs> weird it's overlaps so between immigrants and wasps. What are you reading right now? Okay, um, I just got a copy of Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me. Um, is that sorry? It's on my shelf, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited to read that. I just cracked open Hot Dog Girl by Jennifer Duggan. I just finished Somewhere Only We Know by Maureen Gu. Um, all of these are great, like a love story. Abney Nazamian also beautiful. Um, like coming of age during the AIDS crisis in the late 80s, early 90s in New York. That's what's on my list right now. Amina, thank you so much. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me, Gina. Where can the people find you? Um, The people can find me at Amina May, um, which is my name, A-M-I-N-A-H-M-A-E. And that's, I'm mostly on Instagram. You can find me there on Twitter too, or at aminamay.com if you like websites, but I'm mostly on Instagram, especially if you like cat content and obviously anything you're reading uh you can tag on instagram cyg books and add tell me how you really feel to your list yeah you can find us many places on the internet callyourgirlfriend.com apple podcast spotify stitcher we're on all your favorite platforms subscribe rate review you know the drill you can call us back you can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943 that's 714-681-cygf you can email us callyrgf at gmail.com our theme song is by robin original music composed by carolyn pennypacker riggs our logos are by kanisha sneed special thanks this week to melanie wanga and solen moulin from binge audio for helping me record in paris they really are the best so if you're in paris and you need a studio binge studios we're on instagram and twitter at callyrgf where Sophie Carter-Kahn does all of our social. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. All right, see you on the beach with a book, boo-boo. Bye, boo-boo.